0: Hey, welcome to the AC Podcast. This is Steve. I am here with a very special guest that I've been really kind of chomping at the bit to talk to. I have on the line with me all the way from Southern California, Pastor Mike Winger. He is an associate pastor at Hosanna Christian Fellowship in Bellflower, California. Now, for those of you who know where Biola University is, it's practically just down the road from there. He was ordained as a pastor in 2006 and worked primarily with the youth. He is the featured teacher for the Bible Thinker Online Ministry. It's a ministry dedicated to equipping people to think and live biblically. Now, as a Biola grad, I got to say that really resonated with me because Biola's motto is think biblically about everything. So I really resonated with that. Uh, Now, this is where Pastor Mike spends most of his time now creating free online content because of the growth and the demand of the ministry. He's got a lot of really helpful content. Uh, I really tremendously enjoy it, and I think you will too. Thank you so much for joining us, taking the time out of your busy schedule. Oh, I'm happy to
1: be here, Steve. It's it's good to uh, to meet you. Get to spend some time with you. We have a mutual friend, I think, uh, Wesley Huff.
0: Oh yes, we do. Yeah. And, yeah, uh, I, Wes
1: is a great guy. I like Wes a lot.
0: Yeah, he is. He has been a tremendous guy to have around. Like he, we're good friends with him, and. My friend and my boss, Andy, and I, we lean a little bit more on the side of philosophy, but here is somebody who really is studying the Bible, loves it, and has been very tremendously helpful. He's a good guy, yeah. Uh, Wes, if you're listening to this, yes, we appreciate you. Now, I told our listeners just now a little bit about you in terms of your professional background, but at the risk of sounding too philosophical— could you tell our listeners, who is Mike Winger? <laughs>
1: well, um, you know, it's kind of funny because all of us were, there's a lot more to any of us than what we could sort of become known as online, you know, mm-hmm. and so, um, I mean, I'm, I'm a husband, I'm married, I've been married for over 10 years now to my uh, my lovely wife, Allison. and I was... You know, at my church, I've been there since 2000. And I've been doing ministry there for 20 years. It's just it's 13 years as a youth pastor, uh, but 20 years of serving in that church and the other places before. And basically, I got saved when I was around 12 years old, I lived, I don't get into a lot of details about my testimony, because I have living family members. And I don't want all that stuff to be thrown out there. But, <laughs> but mm. I will say, um, was went through some rough things as a kid, and ended up being invited to church by a friend. And I just went at his invitation, because at the time at that season in life, any excuse to get out of the home was like, I was going to say yes to that. I was a pretty depressed kid, actually. And um, I encountered, um, not only did I encounter the love of God and relationship with God and the life changing impact of that relationally, but the forgiveness of my sins and the peace for my soul. And I mean, it just became this really slow process after that of sanctification. I think I was on the slow mode of sanctification. It was around I was seventeen or eighteen that I just thought I just I just want to serve God in any way I can. As I, it probably sounds like I'm trying to pat myself on the back, but, but I'm really not. Like I think most Christians would be like, yeah, that's me too. You know, this is this is my story as well. It's, of course, you're just grateful for the grace and the love that God has given you. Mm-hmm. And as I served God and just did anything, clean toilets or whatever, I just started finding, you know, you find your gifts by just doing anything you can, and then you find the things you're good at. And so the stuff that I was better at was often teaching. And so I just invested myself more and more and more into studying and understanding things, the logic, the reasoning, the evidence for the Christian faith. I did that kind of for myself in a lot of ways, and then it just overflowed into ministry to others. So I'm now called like an apologist online. But really, I had to be the apologist for me, (laughs) for my own questions. And then I found, oh, other people ask these questions, too, because I was like the only guy in my circle asking this stuff. And so now I get to try to, you know, share it with others. And that's great.
0: Yeah, awesome, awesome. Yeah, that's one thing that I noticed when I first discovered your ministry, I think a couple of years ago, the YouTube channel specifically, I saw a lot of content about the reliability of the Bible, the case for the resurrection, how do you talk to Jehovah's Witnesses, those kinds of things. And it was really refreshing to have a pastor have that kind of depth, not that, you know, I mean, there are lots of pastors who are certainly capable in that area, but just to have that kind of content out there was was really helpful. Um, The reason I invited you to our show today is because of the Passion Translation. So that's what we're going to talk about. And now at the local church where I serve as a pastor, we're seeing the Passion Translation make inroads into our church as well. So we saw some of our youth using this. It's getting more popular there. And we also saw some people in the women's ministry using it. So it's spreading, it's growing. Now, Pastor Mike and I both have some concerns about it. On your YouTube channel, I noticed sometime last year that you had this what you call the Passion Project. So I wanted to start by asking you, so how did you hear about the Passion Translation and what got your attention about it that you decided to address it in depth? And while you're at it, could you also tell our listeners what the Passion Project involves?
1: Oh, yeah. I love that. It's it's exciting. Um, so, uh, you know, I get requests from people uh, all the time. Can you look into this? Can you look into that? And Sometimes I'll just kind of dip into a subject just to find out, like, what is what is the story with this? So people ask, like, Mike, can you look into the Passion Translation? It's 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 growing a lot over here where I live, and my church is using it. People are endorsing it. And I'd never heard of it, and I'm always interested. I just kind of am interested in Bible translations in general. A long time ago, I did a lot of work on trying to understand King James, New King James, ESV, NASB, you know, CSB, all that stuff. And so I looked into it a little bit, and I found it very quickly, found it was unlike any translation I'd ever seen and in bad ways. <laughs> to yeah. yeah. Say. And, um and, the, but couple that with another problem, almost nobody was dealing with it. It was mm. like spreading very, very quickly in circles, where it was being endorsed by basically local pastors, or, or high reputation pastors, who don't perhaps have the actual, you know, education, allowing them to evaluate a translation, but they're endorsing this. And it's spreading like wildfire in those groups, where they generally don't ever listen to scholars. And, So the very few, I mean, like, couple scholars who had talked about the Passion Translation, they had put their stuff out on blogs or whatever, but nobody's reading it. And so I thought, okay, this is my sweet spot, right? An important issue, especially as it's rising up in the church, dealing with it so that normal people can access the data, but trying to do it in a... In a way that's responsible. Like I'm not really into sensational stuff. I don't want to be the guy whose job is to make everyone's ministry look like it's wrong. Like that's not me at all. And um so I, I made a couple of videos on it and I exposed what I thought were some very significant issues, but I got some pushback. And the pushback was, okay, Mike, but how do I know it's not just you? How do I know you're not just weird? Right? Like you're yeah. coming against this translation. Do I should I really trust you? You're just one guy. So I started the passion project. And the passion project was me hiring. Top scholar, not just scholars, but top scholars, and so we got like Douglas Moo, who's like the guy for the Book of Romans,
0: mm-hmm. like
1: the top scholar for, the, and he reviewed Romans in the Passion Translation. And I got like Daryl Bach, and he reviews the Passion Translation. And we get Craig Blomberg, and he reviewed the Passion Translation. We got trimper Longman, who's like one of the top guys in the world for the Song of Solomon, uh written academic commentaries on, and he reviewed the Song of Solomon. And so here we're getting a number of well educated scholarly voices. And I coupled all their interviews with clips of Brian Simmons giving different claims that are end up being exciting to people, but they're misleading and they're outlandish. And that project, I thought this will clinch it. If anybody goes, hey, you know, maybe Mike's just kind of like a heresy hunter attitude. Then what they can do is realize, no, 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 these are real, very serious, very significant issues with this very suddenly popular translation, because I'm going to bring in a variety of scholars, and they're all going to address it. And um, so yeah, we've got, I think, five or six reviews done so far, and I'm still going to do more in the coming months as well. Yeah.
0: Yeah, when I was looking at the list of people that you were bringing in, I mean, the Bible nerd in me was like, I'm putting on my Bible nerd groupie, you know, I'm just, this this was great. Now, from everything that I've seen about the Passion Translation, the concern seems to be twofold. So one is the translation itself, and the other is how the translation actually came to be. So we're going to have to talk about it in tandem because i find that sometimes it's really hard to separate the two so let's start with this now typically when you have a bible translation it is done by not just one person but a a group of scholars a committee of scholars Uh, why do we do it that way and what's what's wrong with having just one person make a translation
1: yeah well um there's I, I've got like three things to think about here. Uh, one is bias, uh, and in, every individual's got bias, I have biases, I'm not aware of, you've got some biases, you're not aware of some I'm aware of. And you know, this has happened to us before, where we make an assumption about something, and then we embarrass ourselves down the road. And like, I was totally wrong, because I had a bias. And mm-hmm. you don't want that in translation, right? That's not what we want in our translation. And so any individual translator will carry their bias, no matter how brilliant they are, no matter how scholarly they are, the scholars will all recognize if you're honest, you'll admit you have a bias. Also, lack of knowledge is a problem. Um, you can't just quote, know the Bible languages like that sounds cute. But the Bible is written over this massive time scale. You know, it covers like, you know, 1500 years of history, using not only different languages, but different time periods of different language, just like English is is one way in Shakespeare, and it's something else today. You're dealing with Hebrew, you're dealing with Aramaic, you're dealing with Greek, But it's not just the languages, you're also dealing with cultures, the cultures themselves are really important in translating understanding idioms. And what do they mean by that, then you've got history, history weighs in heavily, when you understand the historical background of when Paul talks about, can you be uncircumcised? Like, what, what does that mean? Well, that has actually significant cultural background. I use that example, because in the Passion Translation, a section of scripture he mistranslates because he doesn't know the cultural background Mm. um so all of those things are important and any one person uh, this is what uh, dr douglas moo told me he goes no one person can be a master of all of these categories the entire bible like nobody is the the other third issue is motives um bias might be unconscious right but my but if i have motives if i'm making a translation for a purpose then that's a problem. And that is a big problem with the passion translation. It's deliberately made in in some places we have Brian Simmons admitting this, I have it on tape where he admits it that it was made to be like a dreams and visions and and signs and wonders and uh, visitations to heaven version of the Bible. And that's a problem. Yeah. Now the reason why committees help is because when you have to pass through a committee with your translation, your bias will be checked with everybody else. Your, your lack of knowledge will be filled out with other people's knowledge. You may not be the pro in Song of Solomon, but Trimper Longman is, so let's bring him in and he can help translate that. Maybe you're really good with Roman, so we'll have you focus on that. So we, mm-hmm. we have the lack of knowledge dealt with, and then motives are filtered out because you can't get it through a committee if the committee's varied. Usually they do committees that aren't all from say, Um, a Pentecostal background, they're not all from say a reform background, you know, Calvinist, they're usually varied, so that we could filter out those motives, because we want the unchanged translation of God's word. But none of that's true with Brian Simmons translation. He even does have kind of a committee, you know, initially, it was like, he's translating, that was how it came out years down the road, he starts getting criticism. And so then they start bringing a committee and they go, we have, a, we have a committee of scholars. Well, they won't tell us their names. Um, uh, some of them at least we've asked, I've asked, I sent messages, can I please just get to find out who your committee is and how it operates? From what it looks like, Brian Simmons committee is a group of people that are all in his exact same little niche, like you might consider hyper Pentecostal um, or signs and wonders movement. And they're all part of that same group. So they're gonna be sharing the same bias, perhaps same motives as well. And they also lack knowledge. Many of them have like degrees, so it's like doctor so and so, but their degrees not even in the biblical languages. Mm. And so we're like, why are they part of a committee on Bible translation? Is it just for looks? This sounds like I'm I'm throwing bombs already. For those who are like, Mike, you're being really mean to the Passion Translation. I'll be like, guys, the Passion Translation is being mean to the Bible. Like, I just want to <laughs> expose it <laughs> and, and say, yeah. let's let's honor God's word. So, um, so yeah, there, there's an issue there. Everybody who reviewed the Passion Translation specifically wanted to highlight one guy is doing a translation that he's saying is for everyone's use. Even when we have great, brilliant men like N.T. Wright, who do their own translation, it's usually part of like a scholarly practice, like they're doing it to help them understand the text, they translate it, but they don't package and sell it to the world like that, right? Because that's You you get biased, you have lack of knowledge, and you have ulterior motives.
0: Yeah. Now, some of our listeners might be thinking, okay, maybe this is Mike Winger's bias coming out against this translation, but uh, you yourself are not a cessationist, are you?
1: No, I believe in the gifts of the Spirit, speaking in tongues, prophecy, God-giving visions. I believe in all those things. Yeah. Mm, yeah. I, I just don't think... You know, let's put it this way. There's passages of Scripture that talk about those things, and I want them to stay unadulterated. I don't want them to be adapted. You know, when, when, when Paul says that we're singing songs and uh, to each other in Ephesians, I don't want what happens in, uh, or in Colossians, rather, I don't want what happens in the Passion Translation where there's this totally unwarranted addition where Brian Simmons writes, you're getting prophetic songs inspired in the moment by the Spirit. I'm like, wait a minute. That's not what it says in the text. Can God do that? Yes, I think He can do that. But I can't change His word to say that that's what it says. Mm-hmm. That, that's it, man. I'm, yeah, yeah. I I, I I so believe in the work of the Spirit. I think He inspired the Bible the first time.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, now I, I hesitate to talk about Dr. Simmons because I don't want to come off as we're just attacking the person. But insofar as he is such a prominent figure, like he is the translator for this Passion Translation, I think it's appropriate for us to talk about him a little bit. So what's his story of embarking on this translation project? And what kind of concerns do you have about it?
1: Yeah, and maybe this will will help people who, who, you know, I haven't given you the information yet. So you might, some people listening, you might be wondering why is why is he coming on so strong here? <laughs> um, hopefully this will help explain. Um, either what Brian Simmons has done with the Bible is a really wonderful thing that we all, we all have to read it and take it as from the Lord, or we all have to check it and take it as not from the Lord. So it's kind of like a dividing line moment when you realize these things. So Brian Simmons claims that Jesus appeared to him in a moment. He actually came and visited him and that Jesus breathed on him. And at the moment when Jesus and I have all this on tape, I play it in my video series, so people can see it in his own words. But uh, when Jesus breathed on him that according to Brian, Jesus gave him the spirit of revelation, and that this was to help him translate. He also says Jesus promised him that for this translation project, a new English version of the Bible, that Jesus would give him quote secrets of Hebrew and Greek. That's a big, big, big claim. He's not just saying this is a good clear thing. He's like, I'm going to tell you stuff other translations have never known. Okay, that's a pretty big claim, right? It's either very wonderful or it's setting us up for something very terrible. It's just kind of one or the other. He says that um, God gave him information supernaturally that he has put in the footnotes. So it's the only translation where divine inspiration is claimed for the footnotes in the translation. That'll be important to remember later when we talk about some of these footnotes that we have in the Passion Translation. And so basically the Passion is unlike... Other translations that are based upon, um, the, now the translators pray, they're, they're believers, right? they pray, they seek the Lord, but they base their translation off of research and, you know, linguistic knowledge and all that kind of thing. He's suggesting it's coming from revelation. Okay, so that's a big difference, which elevates the conclusion. Right? Because if, if I tell you, hey, Steve, you've got to go across the street and get a burger, it's the best burger ever. That sounds like a good idea. But what if I said, Steve, God told me to tell you to go across the street, it's the best burger ever, you got to go get it. If I tell you it's the Lord, I'm either now wonderfully right or terribly wrong. Like there's, there's no middle ground anymore. And that's, that's the scenario with the passion translation. And you don't have to take my word for it. You could you could go on to um, my Passion Translation series where I've put quotes again from Brian Simmons saying all these things. He is making the claim that God has called him, empowered him, given him special revelations, secrets of Hebrew and Greek. But when we compare that to what scholars say about Hebrew and Greek, they disagree strongly. I'll
0: say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is he a translator? Because it sounded like in some places he claimed to be a linguist, because I understand he worked with a Bible translation ministry. Could you tell us a little bit more about that?
1: Yeah, it's a, it gets a little complicated. So I'll try to simplify it. Um, Brian Simmons is a doctor. He has a doctorate degree, right? But he's, he got that doctor by getting a degree in practical ministry with a focus on prayer from the Wagner Institute, it's not anything related to languages. So he doesn't have any degree that I'm aware of. And I've asked for it. Um, No degree I'm aware of related to languages at all, not a lower degree, not a higher degree, nothing. But that doesn't mean he has no experience at all. So his actual experience, okay, that's his like official education, there doesn't appear to be anything there. When it comes to his experience, and some kind of training, he in back in the 80s, right, in the early 90s, he was part of what was back then called New Tribes Mission. Now they're called Ethnos 360. And these people are missionaries, and they make translations for different countries who, who don't have a Bible yet, often third world countries. Well, one of those third world countries was in Panama. And it was for a tribe of people called the Payacuna, the Paiakuna. And Brian went there to help them according to Brian to help them translate. In some places it sounds like Brian is claiming that he did the bulk of the translating work or maybe that he did like 50% of it because he does acknowledge there was a Wycliffe Bible translator there Keith Forster who also helped. But the bottom line is that he uses this as his like credentials. Here's my credentials. I already did help translate. I translated the Bible into the Paiakuna language. But his stories in some places Feel very exaggerated. When you go to fact check, there's a few problems. The Payakuna translation started years before Brian showed up, and it ended years after he showed up. And that's just for the New Testament. The New Testament alone was translated beginning before he got there and finished after he left. The Old Testament wasn't finished for many years later, decades later. And so you can't act like he was doing Hebrew and, and Aramaic stuff. If anything, there could have been Greek there. But When I contacted Ethnos 360 and talked to people who've been there as long as Brian, who know Brian personally, I talked to a couple different guys, and they said he was never trained as a translator, that he didn't function as a Bible translator in the classic sense that people are thinking, where you go from original languages over to English or another language. But rather, his thing is, he was good at languages, but he learned payakuna, and he worked helping, uh, among other things, as a reader, so he would take a translation and read it. To the payakuna in their own dialect get feedback give that to the translator that's yeah. an important role i don't want to water that down but you can't pretend that it's preparation for translating the bible from original languages yeah into english
0: yeah i can i can really appreciate that actually my wife and i where we met is at uh, trinity western university in british columbia um, and There, the linguistics department is actually connected with Wycliffe Bible translators. That's sort of the Canadian training arm uh, for Wycliffe. And so I was actually in the seminary there, had started a, a master's program in exegesis and Bible languages because I was actually preparing to be a Bible translator. Never finished the program, but I was there long enough to understand the kind of rigorous training that it takes to be a Bible translator. Yeah, and it just didn't seem to me like Dr. Simmons had that, uh, just kind of watching everything that you put out there. And-
1: Let me caveat with one thing here. I, I don't even know what training he really got. You know, right. um, on his end, he'll say he got the training that Ethnos 360 provided, new transmission. Um, but when I contact them, they say he's not a trained translator. Like I'm not really sure what to do with that information. Mm-hmm. Right. So I've yeah. tried to ask like specifically what classes did you do? How far did you go in them? And I, I don't have any of those answers. So what I'm gonna guess is that we can at least seek to verify his abilities by looking at his actual work. And an example of this, you you've done some Greek stuff then. So the example of this, Romans one, three. Romans one, three, well, Paul says he's a servant of Christ. Um, I'm, I'm sorry, one was 1 1. Paul says he's a servant of Christ, and the word he uses is the Greek word doulos. Doulos is a first year Greek student word, right? You learn it, it just right. means servant or slave. That's it, it's a very simple word. But in the footnote there, Brian Simmons has that it means one who serves his master out of love. Mm. And Dr. Douglas Moo reviewed, I'm going to give you a quote from him. He reviewed the, the book of Romans, and he says, and I'll quote, that is nonsense. That is frankly nonsense. It's literally nonsense. (laughs) And and if you know how calm and measured scholars generally are, like they don't Mm -hmm. usually use these kind of terms. um, You understand this is not the work of somebody who has been properly trained. It might be the work of someone who's had a little, like, you know, the the classic joke about first year Greek students. (laughs) They know enough to be dangerous. It feels like that.
0: Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, um, then let's move a little bit more on the side of the translation itself. What is the translation philosophy behind the passion translation? Because when it comes to translation, now I've worked as I speak Korean fluently actually, and I've worked as a translator for about fifteen years. And so I've seen I I've learned a little bit about the range of sort of the spectrum of that translation. On the one hand, you become more word for word. It's very uh, what we would typically call literal kind of a translation. And then on the other hand, as you go to the other side of the spectrum, you get more of the thought for thought. And then if you go far enough, you start to get paraphrases and whatnot. So where does Dr. Simmons place the passion translation along this spectrum? Or is it something different altogether?
1: Yeah, um, he, he leans more towards the thought for thought Stuff he says it's a meaning-based translation, so less word for word, and that has become much more popular nowadays. I think that forty years ago, it seems like the, the general idea is I want word for word. Word for word doesn't actually exist, like not literally straight word, but obviously we just mean things that lean more word for word, right? That are, that that tend in that direction, and then thought for thought, like say the NIV is is more thought for thought or dynamic equivalent, whereas the say the. New King James or NASB it leans more strict and less flexibility. The problem is, um, in reality, he's not actually producing a thought for thought or meaning based translation. He produces what would be called a paraphrase. But to quote uh, here, Libsy Trumper Longman, he says, because I asked, I, I said, so what kind of translation is it? He says he could call it a highly, highly, highly interpretive paraphrase. Now, <laughs> paraphrase, the word paraphrase already means you have a lot of flexibility in how you translate tons, right? The um, the message is a paraphrase. Tons of flexibility in translating the message. But the scholars generally didn't even feel comfortable, except for Douglas Moo, who, who doesn't like the term paraphrase. So he just wants to stay out of that debate. But, but the other ones were all like, it's not even proper to call it just a paraphrase. You've got to add something interpretive, um, expansive. You have to add other things to help people understand, it it, doesn't—like, if you think the message takes liberties, this is much, much beyond that. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
0: From what I understand, the message when it was put out, it wasn't billed as a translation per se, but it was strictly—it was very clear right from the outset, this is a paraphrase. This is not supposed to replace the sort of the quote-unquote official use Bible. But this is a paraphrase now is it fair to say that the passion translation is actually built well as the name suggests that it's being built as a translation
1: yeah that that's probably one of the biggest problems with it right because if it was billed as hey guys this is just a very flexible interpretive paraphrase i've added a lot of flair and extra things that are from me then probably i would never have done the project but also it wouldn't be as popular because people wouldn't trust it as much right um but it actually says on the passion translation faq their website where they have all the promo information for it the passiontranslation.com it says that you can use this as your primary bible for serious study
0: hmm.
1: and that's very misleading like that's this feels to me like like lying about the Bible is what it feels like to me. And I, I'm using a very strong word there. I I don't want to be so soft in my terms that people don't sort of get the red flags going up in their heads here. It's very misleading. Nice way to say it. Another way to say it is that's not true. <laughs> it's not remotely true. So it's not really a translation. It's really kind of like more a paraphrase, very interpretive. I'll give you some examples real quick, just to give a big picture for people who are like, what do you mean by that? The book of Psalms, according to uh, one scholar who reviewed Psalms in particular, says that Brian Simmons work was so reckless in Psalms that he changed the genre of literature, right? There's a poetry prose switch because he changes things so dramatically. This happens in song of songs. We might talk about that as well, where the whole genre is, is altered. It's no longer like, think about this, like how much alteration has to take place before a work is no longer even in the same genre of literature. That's kind of a big deal. It's also very expansive. Um, there's many places where the Passion Translation will put italics to indicate that he's adding things. This is like a convention a lot of translators use. NIV does this, right? There's italics there to say, hey, we're adding these words. We think they're necessary for helping communicate the meaning, but here's these words we're adding. But probably more often than not, he doesn't put italics. So Mm -hmm. in the front matter, he says, I'll give you italics when I'm adding stuff. But then frequently, there's no italics. Sometimes whole sentences are added to the Bible without italics to indicate that there's no Greek or Hebrew behind this. Yeah. So those are yeah, those are
0: problems. <laughs> yeah, those are pretty big problems, actually. Um, one of the claims that really struck me and came off as really odd, because, I mean, I've done some studies in the Bible because of the ministry that I'm involved in and whatnot, but one of the claims that he makes is that, with respect to the New Testament in particular, that he goes behind the Greek text to the Aramaic original, and he does seem to mention some uh, Aramaic manuscripts. What what's all that about?
1: So this is probably one of the biggest issues across the translation, and so it, but it's one of those issues. Um, it's it's kind of unfortunate that some of the biggest problems are also the hardest thing for people to understand when they're not familiar with translating, when they haven't maybe got a little bit of educational background on it. So I'll try to unpack it. Um, Many people know the Bible was not written in English, okay? It was originally written in Old Testament, Hebrew, New Testament, Greek. And some people, in addition to that, know that there are places in the Old Testament that have Aramaic, a different language. Like It's like Hebrew, it's Semitic, but it's a different language. There's places, like in Daniel, there's just this few little places. But what Ryan Simmons is claiming is that he has Aramaic sources for the New Testament, that's a very important and big claim. Um, He in some places, he has said that this is this is like a new change in scholarship that scholars scholarship has suddenly shifted. And they all realized that the New Testament was originally written in Aramaic. Um, This is not true. I ran that claim past the scholars themselves. And not only did they say it was not true, that scholars think this they were like, I don't know why, like, how he could even come to that wrong conclusion. Like it's What is he reading? Uh, Nijay Gupta, who did the book of Galatians on the passion, my passion project. He said he actually went into scholarship to try to look up this claim. And he's like, where is he even getting this from? Like he spent extra hours on it and can't even figure out where it's coming from. But here's how it works to the normal person. They hear Brian Simmons go, there's this Aramaic behind the New Testament. It's the real language of Jesus. Well, that that part is probably true. Jesus probably did speak Aramaic. And I'm going to use it to make my translation, which means my translation is giving you access to some special language stuff that others don't. This is terribly misleading. Mm -hmm. So for instance, Galatians was written by Paul to a Greek speaking audience. Paul definitely wrote Galatians in Greek. Absolutely. There are a couple Aramaic words like Abba, right? <laughs> but he wrote the, the letter in Greek. But Brian Simmons in the footnotes in his Galatians translation, he constantly is saying that he's getting this from the Aramaic original. There is no Aramaic original, like it literally doesn't exist. So when you try to chase it down, you go, what Aramaic is he using? If there's no New Testament written in Aramaic, where is he getting this? Mm-hmm. It looks like he's getting it from the Peshitta, which is hundreds of years after the New Testament, and is actually probably coming from Greek into Aramaic. And it's not even the same dialect of Aramaic that Jesus spoke. But this kind of thing just pulls the wool over the normal person's eyes, because it's just complicated and confusing about languages. Um, Long story short, a lot of the extra content he gets is supposedly from Aramaic. But I'm strongly suspicious that what he says he's getting from Aramaic isn't even in Aramaic, right? Because he does this thing with called homonyms. You know what a homonym is, right? Like it's right. two words that sound, this, they have the same sound, but they have different meanings. Well, imagine um, if you felt like you could do use homonyms to translate the Bible, you'd open up a whole bunch of new possible translations. And this is what happens in the Passion Translation over and over again, homonyms. Uh, Brian Simmons has claimed that God showed him homonyms, that one of the first secrets God revealed to him after giving him supernatural revelation was that homonyms can be used in translating. So he double and triple translates words. This word sounds like that word so i'm going to add that meaning in there too now his verses get much longer he doesn't add italics because he thinks he's it's not it's not adding it's just homonyms but this is like if i took the word butterfly and i said well butter refers to like something you spread you know on your it's it's like you know comes from the the milk and then and then fly flying refers to something that it's it's light it's so really when i say butterfly it also means a low calorie stick of butter and so then i translate if someone says i caught a butterfly and I translate it now, like Brian Simmons, like, I captured a low calorie stick of butter. And it's like, wait, that's not how translating works. No, These aren't secrets. These are foibles. <laughs> These yeah. are mistakes.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, now... I wanna look at just a couple of quick examples of some of the troubling translation choices that are made in the Passion Translation. And the first one I want to get to is Ephesians 320. Now this is how I first encountered the Passion Translation because my sister-in-law, who lives just across the street from me actually, and so we talk frequently, and she sent me a screenshot off of our one of our youth's Instagram posts. And it had Ephesians 3.20. Well, she sent me this screenshot, and then she said, Ephesians 3.20. Can you look this up for me? And when I looked at the translation, I, I actually thought this was, is this some kind of a commentary, or what is this? And then she told me this is actually a translation from the Passion Translation. That was my first encounter with the Passion Translation. So I'm just going to read Ephesians 3.20.
1: Here's what I would ask those who are listening— yeah. Open your Bible or an app to Ephesians three twenty in in any sort of like real translation out there, yeah. and as you look at the verse in ESV and ASB and IV King James New King James whatever, listen to how it sounds in the Passion translation because it's it's when you compare them that you go wait where are all these words coming
0: from? The Passion translation says, "Never doubt God's mighty power to work in you and accomplish all this." He will achieve infinitely more than your greatest request, your most unbelievable dream, and exceeds your wildest imagination. He will outdo them all, for his miraculous power constantly energizes you. That's almost double the length right there. So tell us, Mike, what do you see in this? Uh, Well, let me read to
1: you because you mentioned we were going to bring this first up. So I went and checked. Daryl Bach was the one who did Ephesians. And he had a note on Ephesians 3.20, this exact verse. So this is his response to it. He says, this is too anthropocentric a rendering. It's too man-centered. It's about us instead of God. Then he goes on and says, this is not about our dreams and expectations, but about what God is capable of in relationship to his will through us. So it's not about like what I want, my dreams. It's about his will. It's about accomplishing his will, not accomplishing my, my dreams. Gerald Bach goes on and says, it implies that this is about miracles more than an enabling presence to walk in his will as the next three chapters show. So according to Bach, this passage, it should be about me living out the Christian life, walking in the spirit, which is going to be a lot of godliness and holiness and sanctification. And according to the Passion Translation, instead it turns into God is going to accomplish my dreams with miracles you know, I dream it, he's gonna do them. So this comes off like a very signs and wonders friendly way of rendering a verse that isn't really about that at all. And that's one of my complaints about the passion, I mentioned bias and motive. He said his purpose here is to create a signs and wonders version of the Bible. And he is part of a very extreme, I'm charismatic, but he's part of what I would consider hyper charismatic church. And they're my brothers and sisters, I'm not going to demonize them. But any group, like if what if you went you said, I'm gonna make the most Calvinist focused Bible ever. Every verse that I can, I'm gonna make sure it supports Calvinism. Mm-hmm. I'll be like, Well, if Calvinism is true, you don't need to do that.
0: <laughs> right? Yeah.
1: So, and if and if the charismatic views are right, you don't have to change the text to fit them. And this is an example of that.
0: Right. Okay. Now then let's move on to Song of Songs. Uh, now. It's true that over the course of church history, Song of Songs has often been allegorized. Dr. Simmons gives off this impression, it seems to me anyway, that he is being faithful to how the church has always understood this book, and it's only in the last, I don't know how long, um, maybe 100 years, 200 years or so, that we started looking at this more as an expression of you know, human sexuality, a celebration of uh human sexuality that has been given by God, so on and so forth. What's your take on this?
1: So uh, yeah,
0: the
1: here's what's not a question. Um, does the Song of Songs give us pictures and 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 you know, typology that represents Christ? I think yes. I think Christ in the church is in there. The other the, the question though is, is it actually an allegory? Like there's, there's metaphor and there's allegory. And I think we all see metaphor in Song of Songs. Brian Simmons says it is an allegory. That's a special type of writing. So, uh, you know, the Pilgrim's Progress was an allegory. And so you have a guy named Christian, and he falls into the, the slew of despond or whatever. And right, and he's going through, he's going through hard times. And it's, it's like a pond he falls in. That, that's allegory. But Metaphor is different, you know, Moses is a type of Christ, or the bronze serpent is a type of Christ, that doesn't mean the bronze serpent is allegorical and non existent, it's representative. So that I want to say to go on, Uh, we can all look at Song of Solomon and have that metaphor there. But Brian Simmons gives off the impression that the church has always understood it as allegory, and it is allegory. And that's, that's not historically true. And that's not linguistically true. And this is part of what, you know, got Trimper Longman when he did his review of this, to say, this is a major issue, you know, he'll take a verse, and he'll make it two or three times longer. And he'll add all kinds of stuff. Sometimes he leaves words untranslated, and then he'll add other words to try to turn it into an allegory. So it's about Christ in the church directly, as opposed to indirectly or metaphorically. It's a pervasive issue. This is radical, radical alteration. And it's weird, because Song of Solomon in the whole work of the Passion Translation is one of the most adulterated texts in the book, but it was the first one he did. And he says it's his favorite book of the Bible, which goes to show you that it's bias and motive that's pushing this and not good translating.
0: Okay. So we've looked at the Passion Translation and some of you've shared some of your concerns with this. Now, what words of caution would you offer to our listeners if there's anybody who's currently reading the Passion Translation or who are thinking about reading the Passion Translation? What would you say to them?
1: Um, I, w- I want to say a couple of things. One would be, I'm not saying this is the New World Translation, where it deliberately changes the identity of that's the Jehovah's Witness Bible, deliberately, ch- you know, tries to obscure the Trinity. The things that are being altered here are the words of God. But that doesn't mean that every like essential Christian doctrine is being changed. You could probably read the passage translation and come to most of the same theology, except perhaps in areas dealing with spiritual gifts and miracles, that sort of thing. So that's not what I'm saying. What I would say is this is just that we don't, we don't want to alter the scriptures. We don't want to give out an inaccurate translation to the people of God. You don't change God's word. And I'd also encourage people with this. You might like the Passion Translation. You may find that as you read it, you're like, I really like that. And I thought my thought is that's why it's selling so much. It, what if you could change the Bible as long as you just made it more likable? And the spoonful yeah. of sugar, right? Yeah. And, and that's what happens over and over again. It's it's how can I make this sweeter? How can I make this more beautiful? How can I make this sound nicer? Craig Blomberg, one of his criticisms is like that in 1 Corinthians 13, it's this amazing version of the love passage. And he goes, it would be so wonderful you know, if the text said that, but it doesn't say that. That was kind <laughs> of his, his big beef. So I would say stay away from it. Um, you don't want to overreact to it there's tons of great translations out there, but this is not one of them. And it will lead to skewed theology, especially in the area of spiritual gifts, Mm -hmm. and signs and wonders. And that's an area where over, you know, it seems like in my opinion, when you have a church that has bad theology about the gifts, about a generation or half a generation down the road, they suffer the consequences, they get all hypey, they get really the movement moves, and then all of a sudden, there's the damage done by the theology that's been distorted.
0: If, let's say our listeners are ne- not necessarily reading the Passion Translation, now they're aware of some of the concerns about it, but they see somebody else who's using the Passion Translation, how would you suggest they engage them, or should they engage them at all?
1: That's going to take an individual moment-to-moment evaluation. I would say be strategic, don't respond gut reaction to these things. You might ask them questions. You know, If it's worth discussing, you might want to find out. Like If it's a new believer, and they're just getting off drugs, and they just came to Christ and stuff. I, I don't know if I'm going to address that first, if that's the first thing I want to talk to them about right at that moment. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would maybe encourage them, hey, this is maybe a better translation for you, maybe a gentle nudge would do, you know, yeah. or perhaps there needs to be more if it was a pastor teaching from the passion, I would definitely want to approach and persist moving on that. Mm-hmm. I want to move people away from the translation because it. The tendency is that people love the translation. So then they start to look to the translator who has promised us more visions and more prophecies coming in the future. And I think that that's a little scary to come underneath that authority. So I'd say, be gracious with people. Maybe you could send in my series. Sometimes people won't listen to you one-on-one. They just won't let you talk. But if you share a video with them or a, Mm -hmm. a podcast like this one, they're like, huh. In fact, maybe you're listening right now. And it's because your friend knew you wouldn't listen to them. So they sent you this <laughs> podcast <laughs> and he thought, who listen to these two strangers, But not me. And that's true. Sometimes we're like that, you know, and, mm-hmm. and so maybe find some resources that you think this would reach my buddy and then send it to him.
0: Yeah, sounds good. Okay, well, we're going to have to uh, wrap this up. I tremendously enjoyed this conversation. Now, if our listeners want to learn more about you and your ministry, where would you send them?
1: Um, I would probably just send him to YouTube. Um, Mike Winger, just look up my name on YouTube, and you should find it real easy. Otherwise, they could go to BibleThinker.org, which is my subpar website. Currently subpar. Hopefully, <laughs> one day, one day we'll we'll make it work better. In the future, I'd like to be able to have it it'd be much more accessible. People to be able to find like lesson plans on how to like work through different things mm-hmm. they want to learn because I have tons of series. I have over five hundred videos now on YouTube, and generally speaking, most of them. I put like 30 hours of work into each one. So um, that is uh, exciting for me to share with everybody and hope it's a blessing to you.
0: All right. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining us again on the podcast and enlightening us. And like I said, many times I've, your videos and all of those things really tremendously helped me as well. Uh, And I know for a fact that a lot of listeners who are no doubt going to check out your ministry will benefit from it as well. Thank you for being faithful. Thank you for taking some time out of your busy schedule to talk to us today.
1: Yeah. Thanks for having me on, Steve. I've had fun.
0: You've been listening to another edition of the AC Podcast. The AC Podcast is a ministry of Apologetics Canada, and we'll come back next week with more stuff to think about. Until then, take care.
1: Hey, listeners. Thanks so much for tuning into this week's episode. We pray that you were challenged and encouraged. The AC Podcast is presented to you on behalf of Apologetics Canada. So to stay in the loop and make sure you never miss an episode, please subscribe to the AC Podcast on your preferred streaming platforms. And as always, love God and love people.